0: Welcome to Top of Mind with Concilial Wealth, a show about markets, investing, and financial planning. Join us as we cover current events that are in the news and answer top of mind questions from our listeners. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment
1: advice. This audio may contain statements that may be
0: Episode five of Top of Mind with Concilia Wealth. We've got an awesome agenda lined up today. Uh, I have an update on my five to nine plan or my son's five to nine plan. Uh, how is going to make me talk about this today? So um, we can share the update with everybody. Uh, we also are going to talk about housing and months of supply. We've got a lot of good news actually in today's podcast. I know that uh, uh, we've been highlighting some of the bad news, and our hope is with all of this to to sort of pull what this news actually means because the headlines skew negative. Um, and so there are more negative headlines that we're gonna highlight today, but our hope is to help you all see uh, the good news behind that. We're gonna talk a little bit about some other sales idea, uh, um, not sales ideas, but just sales, um, like consumer sales, consumer buying, that sort of thing. Um, and then uh, a few other things if we have time. Well, how? welcome back, it's nice to see you.
1: It was great seeing you.
0: How are things going in your world
1: today? Thanks, Chris. Pretty good. Pretty good. So last time we talked, we thought the Fed was trying to crash the market. <laughs> they didn't crash the market. I'm using really, really uh, you know, strong terms here, but uh, the last Fed's speak, uh, we we recorded the podcast days before. Mm-hmm. And I said I expected that the market to react, you know, more pessimistically about it and i know we're gonna we're gonna uh, be more optimistic but um that was actually probably a good thing they finally listened to what the fed's trying to do which is trying to slow things down Mm -hmm. and i think the data that we're seeing regardless of the headlines things are looking pretty good in terms of inflation which i think is on everyone's mind and what we're seeing
0: yeah we um I remember last time it was, I believe it recorded right before that Fed meeting. And so, you know, the next day they came out and the market fell like 3%. um, And, you know, one could say maybe the market got a little happy thinking the Fed would take their foot off the gas early. But, you know, again, our hope for today is to pull out what is the good news behind all of the bad headlines, uh, because essentially what we're seeing is that it's working um meaning inflation numbers are coming down and less sales is actually a good thing it helps helps prices come down and this sort of thing so we want to highlight a lot of that today
1: yeah we wanted the fed to build back its credibility which it lost right in 2021 when inflation was starting to flare Mm -hmm. up and they said it was transitory and they lost a lot of uh, credibility what they're building back here is we're serious right your expectations for inflation need to come down so sometimes expe- expectations become reality. That's why we view that as good news. The market did sell off and reacted in kind. But again, the worst, not the worst thing for a market to go down sometimes. That's, that's actually a sign of a healthy yeah. market.
0: So let's actually start there. So this is this is a good place to, to start. So you had some data on housing inventory uh, that was from the, the FRED site.
1: Yeah, the Fed has, uh, different wings and Fred is the St. Louis fed and they collect all the data and a housing inventory is, um, measured by month's supply. Meaning if we had no, no new homes to sell existing or new on listings, right? So if you're, if you're a buyer and there were no new listings, how many months would it take to work through all of the existing inventory? Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. All right, so in a normal and on a normal period, existing inventory typically lasts six months, mm. meaning it takes six months to burn through all the listed housing um, offerings. Right on the market, if no
0: new houses were listed, it would take six if months no to sell new... everything, and then there'd be zero listed in that. Okay. Correct.
1: That's that's a sign of a healthy market. It's not overheated, okay. and it's also not, you know, in a in A dump, right? Like, I bet in 2008 to sell a home, it probably was you know, nine month How Can you go supply. back that
0: far in that chart? I don't want to derail you, but I'm curious now.
1: Nope. Oh, <laughs> I don't know why. I can't. Let me let me, yeah, the data is uh relatively new, the one okay. I'm on, but right now we had like a bottom. Which is like one of the worst periods to buy a house was in January 2022. Seasonality, keep in mind, is a big part of it where no one's moving in January. That's the middle of school year. It's the middle of winter. Who's moving the rain mm-hmm. or snow? Um, in Sacramento, there's none of that. So, so it's just dry. And that was 1.6 months. That's unhealthy, right? That's way too tight. Meaning, it's gonna take 1.6 months to work through all the existing inventory. That's not enough time.
0: Which is why it was such a Since seller's market. You know, sellers could command whatever yes. price, there's not enough buyers. So there's, you know, I know in our greatest area, you'd have 28 offers on a home, on any given home. And that's what would yes. push the price up so much. And so the seller had all the control in that instance.
1: Yeah, and if you're looking at that as a bottom, I'm using air quotes here for audio listeners. Um, if that's a bottom, the Fed was actually pretty effective in, in communicating, hey, we're going to raise rates and we want mortgage rates to go up. What did mortgage rates do? Did they go up a ladder or did they just skyrocket up?
0: They kind of skyrocketed. I mean, if it was a ladder, <laughs> it was steep.
1: Yeah, we talked about last episode how the market has a good way of pricing things in mm-hmm. right way. Mortgage rates are a good example. It shot up to 5.8, nearly 6%. and. It, it's kind of back there. It, mortgage rates are pretty noisy, but it had its intended effects, right? So so if mortgage rates are higher, potential buyers are being scared away or they simply can't afford this, it.
0: This article here, just, Again, just to jump in, the, the 30-year fixed rate, yeah. as of the writing of this particular article that I'll quote, which was September 8th. So yesterday, as of the date of this recording, uh, 5.89% is what a 30-year fixed rate uh, stands at right now up from 2.88% a year ago. There you yep.
1: go. And si- since that, uh, quote unquote bottom in January, 2022, uh, the, the month supply is up to 3.3 right now. As of July, we haven't got any, um, yeah, August data, but I expect that number to actually stay flat because seasonality, um, cause like who's selling a home. Well, in maybe January? we'll have seasonality yeah, this year. September.
0: Like we haven't, I know I know, yeah, it's like talking, and I know this is region specific and the pandemic boom towns that we talked about last year, but also just a lot of a lot of big cities have experienced this this huge, huge growth in sales and people moving like out of the cities, you know, to the suburbs, those sorts of things. And so you've seen like in the greater Seattle area, I think our, our numbers were 0.1 or 0.2 months of supply at the highest, I mean, it was just, so, you know, some areas are more extreme than these national numbers that we're quoting here. <laughs> Um, but, but regardless, this is moving in the right direction.
1: Yeah. And we're, we're providing all this context because a lot of, uh, media headlines will say, well, home sales are crashing. The housing is in a recession. Well, yeah, yes and no, but l- look at what's happening to sellers. They're probably anchored to their old price and they could probably afford to keep paying their two to 3% mortgage rate. Right. And rent out their home. They're, they're okay. They're not willing to sell their home for less than what they think it's worth, unless they have to. Be. Yeah,
0: it'll take a while for that to to sink in. I mean, let's let's pull out what you just said there. I, I think likely prices are are too high. Sellers aren't, um, you know, they're used to listing and getting way over whatever they list at, and now they're probably listing too high. All the data I'm reading is saying. Something like 70%, 60%, 70% of homes are having price reductions in many, many areas across the country. This is not bad news. This is good news. Um, again, the media focuses on the yeah. negative and they spin it so it's a negative. If we could instead flip that around glass half full, then we could say, hey, homes aren't selling as quickly. Therefore, if you're a buyer, you now have a little bit more leverage. Maybe you can actually get an inspection and not have to wave your life away when you buy that house. Or maybe you can go in with a contingency and and actually stand a chance and win because you're not going up against 28 other people in that home. Um, so I think this is this is good news. This is saying that housing prices maybe may not necessarily are going down, but it's just getting a little bit easier to buy as a buyer. Uh, I think the funniest thing with all this is that isn't this what we not the funniest thing? That's not the right word. But the maybe the most interesting thing isn't this what we all were waiting for? Like let's rewind the tape six months and buyers were so frustrated with the fact that I can't get a house and prices are going up so fast. And you know, it's, it's 25% a year in some areas. It's just, this is unaffordable. This is ridiculous. Now that things are slowing, buyers go, I don't want to buy now. It's at 6% mortgage rates. I would suggest this is partially what we're, what we're waiting for and that what we're in before is not normal. What we're in now is much more normal.
1: Yeah. And again in another media headline we'll we'll see is or have seen is home builders are slowing because the you know, prices have come down so they can't really justify building a home. We mentioned it yeah. last time, right? You can't build a home and sell it for less than what you you know, cost to build sure. it. But let's let's just look at a level down. This is all part of the, the normalization process across the entire economy, right? We're picking on housing because everyone is so enamored with housing because they live in a house. Right. And a couple of things with home builders stop slowing building. Right. Uh, what's that? What do they need to build a home?
0: Uh, steel, aluminum. They need drywall. They need cement, a lot of wood, lumber, lumber appliances. Yeah. They need labor. Labors. What was
1: happening to all those things in early this year? The cost of all those things around, uh, let's say, January that was 2022. That the
0: highest cost that, it, that things were.
1: Yeah. Since the, the peak in, I'm going to say May, the cost of steel, aluminum, copper, lumber down on average of uh, 15, 20%. Lumber is probably the worst, where it's down like 30, 40%. And, you know, just bringing in gas because. You know, I, I don't know how much gas is used to build a house, but um, gas prices mm. are down 30, 40 percent from their GMT. Gas is probably
0: embedded in the right? cost because it takes a lot of gas to get all the things to the house to build the Tri- house. S-
1: mm-hmm. Shipment, right? You think about the goods. What about the labor? Right. We're, we were in a labor crunch probably around January, February 2022. Right. Because all these builders were in such high demand for, for good reason. But that that raised the cost of everything, cost of labor, cost of lumber, cost of copper, which are all coming down now because it's part of the normalization process. So these home builders like KB Homes or Pulting Homes or Toll Brothers, they can really get the supplies and inventory a lot cheaper. Labor might be a little more sticky, but... That's good news for anyone who's buying steel. Let me just
0: quote a couple things here that you have. So steel is twenty-one percent almost less than the peak price, and ten percent less than it was at the beginning of twenty twenty-two. Aluminum is almost thirty-seven percent under the peak and fourteen percent less than it was at the beginning of twenty twenty-two. Copper is twenty-five and a half percent less than the peak price, and seventeen percent off this year, so less this year, twenty twenty-two. Lumber, uh, which has been really, really bouncy. Uh, Actually, I don't have a number here, but it's down. Um, it's definitely down off the peak by, by my memory, about.
1: The peak was seventeen hundred. Yeah, seventeen hundred dollars. It's down sixty percent. That's a thousand feet. Yeah, it's five hundred eighty. Yeah, thank you.
0: Yeah. So just some numbers there. This is good news. So again, the the messaging here. Things are
1: cheaper. What you're going to see in
0: the media is, oh, my God, prices are falling, you know, steel demand and home buyers aren't buying and all the building and all this kind of stuff. This is good news. This is a sign that it is working and recognize that what we were in was not normal. And what we are in now and moving towards is more normal. And that is a good, healthy thing for long term growth for the economy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Let's take it beyond housing. Who who else uses off the top of your head, aluminum and steel uh,
0: for manufacturing cars, uh, technology cars. stuff, you know, computers, phones, Apple just released their new iPhones. Appliances. So all of that is, uh, you know, there's metals, there's chips, there's glass, plastics, all these types of things.
1: Yeah. And we don't have to think far for even us to complain about how expensive all those things you listed yeah. were. Right. When we expect the, well, not expect, we f- we're we seeing the the cost of aluminum and copper crash in its raw form. What's that going to do for the manufacturers of all these goods that we thought previously will do you know, expensive? Actually,
0: I'm thinking about this out loud now. It could drive the price down, which could be good for inflation. It could also contribute better to profits because what's the number one or number two thing that, all S&P 500 companies listed this last quarter on their earnings report. We're seeing higher costs. We're seeing higher materials costs. We're seeing higher shipping costs and this kind of thing. Maybe that's starting to ease. And uh, you know they have less less pressure on their own balance sheets. Apple came out with their new phones. They didn't raise the price. So uh, I heard this, but I, I, I can't confirm this to be true, but I'll, I'll, I'll repeat it here. Anyways, uh, I heard that the iPhone is the most profitable product in history. Um, again, I can't confirm that. I think that's interesting if it is, I know it is highly, highly profitable. Apple strives to make money on their phone versus the services drive from their phone. Uh, so just a big thank you to Apple for, you know, patting their billions, giving (laughs) us all just a, just a a little bit, you know, saving 10 bucks a phone and not raising the price. Uh, and instead.
1: Yeah. Raise the price in this economy. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Appreciate you, (laughs) Apple. You know, you can, you can, you can carry that on your balance sheet for us.
1: Yeah. And also um, go back to housing, just bring up another point about uh, housing appreciation and just a different way to look at it. So uh, cost of replacement, meaning we, we mentioned how much lumber costs, right? How much aluminum costs, copper costs. Those are all big components of housing. And if you bake in the cost of replacement, so that that's an economic term of if you were to rebuild your home on the plot, it was what would it cost? So with all those goods baked in with how expensive they were in March, April, May, in, in the home appreciation during that time, home, home prices were only up uh, 4% over the cost of replacement. Hmm. So if you think about it, the cost of a home, one, was more expensive to build, so home builders had to sell it at you know cost plus hmm. margin. That makes sense, right? So, if your existing home—if you think about it—as if you were you were, you were Toll Brothers or KB Homes, and you were rebuilding your house and selling it, what would you have to sell it at? So that whatever your house was worth, consider the cost of replacement below that, and that's how economically we look at look at home appreciation. I know, again, if you look at your statement or look at the value of your home on paper, yes. It, you're making a lot of money in home equity because you're not rebuilding your home. That that's crazy. But the cost of replacement is something that we in the economics world really consider because one, you'll have to re- rebuild homes or build new homes to, to really gauge the cost of how things are appreciated. It
0: makes sense. And I've never totally so, thought about it like that. You know, if you bought X number of years ago for whatever amount of money you can't build it today for that same exact cost. So the replacement cost has a, has an impact on the ultimate value because if something happened in the home, you would have to replace it. Therefore it is worth at least that you can't, you wouldn't replace it for yeah. 500,000 and sell it for 300,000 because you bought it for 300,000 yeah, years ago.
1: My insurance rep called me and was like, Hey, the cost of replacement has gone up on the house. You, you, are yeah, gonna GP have to insurance. Your Yeah. coverage, yeah. right? So if the home appreciates, it's, again, it's it's kind of a nerdy economic thing to think about, but the home appreciation isn't just a free and clear appreciation, right? And yeah, the cost of replacement, if you needed to fix your plumbing, fix your electrical, my AC yeah, broke, that's right. it's 115 degrees here in Sacramento, my AC broke two days ago, and the cost of replacing your air conditioning, right? All that's up right? That's a cost. And, and even though the home values come up, it, it reflects the cost of the, the, the components so, in the home.
0: but then we just talked about how the price of all these components of the home are coming down. So wouldn't that be then putting downward pressure on the replacement cost and therefore home prices. Yeah.
1: And home prices, again, you, you mentioned, um, what 70% of listings have, uh, yeah. reduced their pricing. I don't think that's a coincidence. One, it's a supply and demand issue, but one, two, how, how severe are those price cuts? It's four it's or true, 5%. Right? We like, don't have that does, data. The data doesn't say. Yeah. Yeah. But again, trending, everything's trending in the right so direction. Here, this is like
0: really And and, and here's what I would add. So this is a, I know a lot of our listeners in the greater Seattle area and, and, so I'll, I'll quote this article this is from the Puget sound business journal. This was released, uh, yesterday. So September 8th it says, um, annual median east side family home sales rose less than 4% in August, Seattle only saw about a 6% increase. Pierce and Snohomish County continues, uh, excuse me. Counties experienced hikes of less than 8%. What this is good news. Like that's framed as, oh my God, things are crashing down. So it says Seattle area home market continues to cool but experts say it's not the start of a bear market. Okay, so uh, further, uh, before rising interest rates started to tamp down the market, median sales price jumped over 22% on the East side, 11 in Seattle, 14 and 17 in and Snohomish counties respectively. Okay, we can all agree that is not normal. It's awesome if you own, but it's not normal. And so seeing what is actually happening, it, it, this would actually suggest that prices are still ticking up a little bit, just a lot slower. Uh, and when you look at the long-term house appreciation numbers, you should be somewhere around inflation. Now don't misquote me. Inflation at 8% should not be what you should expect on your home. Um, long-term inflation, let's say it's around three, four, five. That's what you would expect somewhere around your, uh, or your home to appreciate, um, homes historically are, are decent inflation hedges. And the U S likely wants to trend towards that two to 3% number again, um, we'll see when we get there. But anyway, I just thought this is interesting here. Um
1: I think that bears repeating is homes don't appreciate like <laughs> like up in yeah. a straight line uh, historically like eh, tamp down expectations in in terms of how much home values jump in normal circumstances.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, should we talk about the 5 to 9 plan?
1: I know you're <laughs> dreading this part. So uh, yeah, um, for the uninitiated, I think it was the few week, few episodes ago where Chris admitted to holding off um, contributing to an, his newborn son's uh, 529 to uh, college savings, and I, I asked him, you know, to give give himself a little grace because it's just it's just a it's a normal thing, and what Chris did. Um, you know, we want to empathize with anyone who is in the same boat, uh, same hesitation and really go through his, his, uh, his personal, you know, experience with it, which is pretty awesome to live through.
0: Yeah. I had to embarrass myself there because, uh, because of how perfectly this worked out And, and actually right before we started the recording, I, I, uh, I finally looked at this data and, um, so to, to roll the tape back, we, my wife and I meet monthly to have our family finance meetings, which is maybe something I can talk about in another another podcast, what we cover and what we do there. That's a good practice.
1: That a lot of people um, and
0: so in this meeting, one of the topics was, hey, should we do a five two nine plan? How much should we put in this year? You know, blah, 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 blah. And so we decide, you know, yep, we want to do this and, you know, we want to allocate X toward this account and and let's do it. So we met on uh uh 717 it was a sunday and so you know we made the decision let's let's invest on that monday you know 718 simple as that and uh that was the week where there's a lot of economic news coming out that um you know i thought well hey maybe maybe the market will come down a couple percent i can get in a little lower which how to your point this goal is in like 2040 um what's the difference of a of a couple of percent um but i said well you know I'll, I'll wait a week and uh what happened was the market went up um in fact 717 wasn't the, the the bottom or the near-term bottom um 616 was as we know as it today so but it was very very close to it um i ended up waiting a whole month and so on august 16th I made the first deposit now because the market had done so well and for context in between the day when I decided I was going to make the investment. So, uh, uh, July 18th to August 16th month, uh, the market was up 10 and a half percent. So I missed, I missed (laughs) 10 and a half percent. So because things were doing so well, I decided to do half of what we were going to allocate. So you know, maybe it'll come down and, and I'll be able to average out my cost basis. Uh, here's what's crazy. I could not have timed this worse. 8.16 was the top. Uh, 8.15 was lower and 8.17 was lower. 8.16 was the exact top. Uh, and of course I uh, finally, I, I threw in the towel, right? Well, I, I just, maybe house advice finally got to me. I uh, just, you know, it's, a, it's an 18 year goal, just put money in. So thanks for yeah. that.
1: In in a th- yeah three month period that's bad advice because you lost this. Very yeah, small so maybe mind, I, I can give
0: you some blame on 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 buying at the high, because <laughs> um, I'd probably be still sitting on the sidelines. So anyway, so okay, so I buy at eight sixteen on eight sixteen up ten and a half percent from what I previously said I was going to buy, which I didn't do anything. Uh, I put in half. Then uh, the market started to fall. So of course I was cheering. This was like great news for me. Uh, And I put in the other half of what I wanted to do on September 2nd. And in between August 16th and September 2nd, uh, the market was down 8.5%. Okay, not bad, but it was still up 1.3% from the initial decision point. What else did I miss between July 17th and September 2nd? Dividends. Dividends. If, I get it that. Income. Yep. Right. So, uh, I just, this is, this is funny and thanks how, because in 18 years, it won't matter. Right. It's all going to be about the same. Um, but I think the lesson here is just don't try to, uh, time it. We know this, this is what we say in our meetings. And, and it's, it's funny. This is what we do for our clients. But of course, when it's then my own, it's like, well, maybe I'll wait a week and look at what happened to me.
1: Yeah. And I, I, I bet in his senior year, he's going to come back to you and say, Hey, dad, you know, that time you missed that, that 10% swing, the worst part <laughs> that's going to cost me. The worst a part about book.
0: this is I'm still down on the whole account, right? Because I bought in at the high and then I bought in more at the low and I'm still down. I have to look,
1: but I'm down a couple of percent still because yeah. 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 <laughs> can, can I ask about your plan? Um, I, I was similar to you. We, we put a small amount, uh, right when my daughter was born. Uh-huh. Um, my son, not so much, but don't tell him this. Hopefully it doesn't, listen. I won't. Yeah. Um, yeah. Are you planning to, to invest more? Uh or is that, it was one of the lumps? We,
0: out. we are. So I, I would say the, the general rule that, that we advise clients on, which, we're, as you can imagine, we, we, uh, do what we tell our clients to do here personally as well. <laughs> yeah. uh, our money's diversified in the same portfolio that our client's money is in, it's all the same stuff. So, um, five to nine plans work sort of like a Roth IRA for education. So when you fund them, you fund them with after tax dollars and then all the growth is tax-free. So if you think about what are some of the best opportunities to fund these types of accounts, It's a, when the markets come down because you can simply buy more shares for that same amount of money in that year. And then likely things recover quickly. I know we talked about this in prior episodes, how when markets come down, you generally have volatility, both on the upside or, or, or in recovery on the upside. Um, so it's a good time to buy, to get sort of a, actually a quick return over six to 12 months, um, And the other opportunity would be if you happen to be in a lower income tax year. So funding anything that is an after-tax account, if you're in a very, very high tax bracket is expensive. If you happen to have say stock as a big portion of your income, which I know we have a lot of clients that work in technology, right? So if stock is a big portion of your income and that company stock has also come down this year, you may pay less in taxes or have less of a percentage in taxes this year and therefore funding accounts that are after tax is cheaper this year all we,
1: we call that a tax holiday right is
0: yeah is that the yeah. right term we right? call that a tax holiday same thing okay. on more of an extreme example of let's say you're working for somewhere big tech you leave you do a startup of say your own you're not drawing any salary for a year or two and you have no income that is a tax holiday that we love as financial planners. And we can knock out a whole bunch of different things, whether it's funding after tax accounts, uh, um, uh, capital gains harvesting, uh, because you're in a lower tax bracket, Roth conversions, conversations for another time. Um, so anyway, that, that's our, our how 529s work. And our philosophy as a firm is, we like to fund them uh, early and at a high level. Um, the contributions that you put in when your kid is 16 or 17, and then take back out at 18, don't have nearly as much value as the ones when they are six months old or five years old, just simply because they don't have as many years to sit in there and bake and grow and compound as, you know, as they do at 17 or 18. So we like to take the total amount of money that you want to put in the five to nine. And if we can, and if it works financially for you, squish it into a couple of years and do it early.
1: It's if it works for you, right? Like, again, we're, I want to be clear. We're not judging anyone who doesn't fund a five to nine because, you know, some parents prefer their kids to work. Let me college. take it a
0: step further too. So as a philosophy, so yeah. I think one of the biggest, um, uh, concerns that we hear on 59 plans is I don't know where my kid's going to go. I don't know if my kid's going to go.
1: If at all, right? And I don't know what yeah. college is going to look yeah.
0: like in 18 years. Is it going to be as expensive as it is today? Like it's no, no, uh, surprise or no shock that the cost is going up or has gone up like crazy. Is that sustainable? So will there be your material changes over the next 10, 15 years? And then when my kid goes to school, maybe it's back to a reasonable number again. So I don't want to oversave in this account that's earmarked for college. And because the risk of that is if you have excess money in that account, you've got to take it out, pay penalties, taxes, and yada, yada, yada. Our philosophy is, still fund the account if so if college is a goal and you want to set aside some money still fund the account do it early do it often and get it over with and then just stop and we like to target funding to around 50 percent of your actual goal um particularly if it's private school let's say you say i want to pay for harvard if my kid goes to harvard i want to pay for the whole thing we say great we run the numbers and we generally would say, let's target whatever amount of funding it's going to require to get you there in the 529 to get 50% going to the 529. Why? Because what if Harvard's not where they go? It's going to grow. What if they go to a yeah. state school that is a significant amount less because Cheaper. it's an in state school?
1: Yeah.
0: We don't want you to have significant amounts of money inside of a 529 plan that you can't necessarily use.
1: You mentioned risk of overfunding. What are the other risks? Like, you know, what are, what are parents potentially giving up if they overfund?
0: Um, I think if they're if they're overfunding, so so a positive to that if um, if from an affordability standpoint or a estate standpoint, parents don't want or need that money back. You can just leave it to the kids. So you can change beneficiaries on five two nine plans, which is actually really powerful. You can change it to uh, yourself. You could change it to another kid you can change it to a grandkid for that matter and so this could be potentially one of the most powerful vehicles to let's say your your kids through school and you have $25,000 sitting in that 529 plan just let it sit until they have kids and pass it on imagine that right imagine that i don't know 40 30 40 years of compounding that's like the ultimate head start versus I think most people have a kid think about a 529 plan and it's an 18 year goal. Imagine doubling that. So let me flip that around as, Hey, what are the risks? Well, if you can afford to leave the money in there, it's not the worst thing in the world. It's actually a really nice thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I know, um, college funding, especially loans is just like a third rail here. It's like such a, such a dividing topic. And, and I think we wanted to really highlight Chris's personal experience Right? Because he has great advice on it and he's living living it. And you know, there there are a couple of things where, you know, everyone's gonna have a different opinion on it, mm-hmm. which is fine. Let them have their opinion. It's your money, it's your kids' money. Um, I think what we're encouraging is 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 come up with some kind of a plan. And it's it's eighteen years away in a lot of the cases, ten years away in other cases. That's mm-hmm. still a long time, right? And if you're waiting till 2032 for your kids to start college, right? Compounding one is one of the most important things that we do in investing. But two, in your case, have that discussion, right? What, what does debt look like w- with you and your family? What does funding look like? What does working through college look like? Uh, and there's no right answer, yeah. right? Uh, Chris and I had pretty similar paths to college, uh, both state grads. But, you know, we know people who... Who had their parents fund theirs. and that's fine. That's they had scholarships. Mm-hmm. That's fine too. Like, g- there's many paths up the mountain, but um, you know, debt isn't the worst. School debt isn't the worst thing, um, especially if they're chasing um, really, you know, really good major like engineering, and there, there's a high probability of success post college. But is that does that work for you? Does that work for your kid? right? Does that work for future generations in your, your dynasty, I guess. And I think everyone is going to have a personal approach to it and they should. Let's
0: come back to something you said there. Cause I think it's important. I feel like, I don't know if it's just a societal thing, but I feel like there's sort of this almost parent shaming. If you're not saving for your kid's college, or if it's not a goal of yours, you know, you're not being a good parent. And, um, I feel like I sense that sometimes in my meetings when I ask, what's your goal at college? And I feel like people are really just parroting what maybe came across the dinner table one time with some friends. And so it's like, well, my friends are doing this, so I wanna do this, because we're all kind of the same. And I would encourage folks to really take a step back and go, what do I really want to do here? Um, Do I want to fund everything? Do I want to fund some? Do I want to fund none? Do I want to support in a different way? We have a lot of clients that say, you know, I'm not sure what college looks like. So I want some of the money in a 529, but I want some of the money in a different account because maybe at that time I'm helping my, my child start a business, or maybe I'm helping them go through a trade school or I'm helping them buy their first house. And maybe that's more impactful than just putting money in a 529 plan. Uh, So I would really, I think it's taking a step back and really having a conversation as a family with a spouse going, what values are we trying to instill with what we are saving for this objective? And then do what you want to do, not just what maybe society is saying that you at your income level with your asset level can do. I think that's more powerful um one of the questions that i ask mm-hmm. people all the time uh, when they say hey i will pay for you know let's run the planet four years of harvard for my three kids in fact let's even be more conservative and let's run what about six years for my three kids all at harvard and and we run
1: you're on you're on the how plan six years there of, you go and that. we run
0: we run the numbers right and it's it's a big number and so i always ask well are you willing to work longer if all of this actually becomes true? If you do have three kids going through a very expensive school and you are shouldering all of it so that your kids can come out of this with, with no debt, are you willing to work longer if that's what it takes? And I think that's the most important question to ask. Some people are unequivocally yes, I'll do anything and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. And some people when asked that, I think they go, no, I'm not actually. And that's also also fine. fine. Yeah. And I think what I'm trying to encourage here is come up with what you truly want, not with, not be biased or, or, or swayed by maybe what somebody else's values are.
1: Yeah. And if you're listening in the car with kids, like I ask them to put earmuffs on, but if you fund their college, is there a way to get them to sign a contract to say they'll take care of you in your <laughs> retirement years, since you, since you funded their, their, their livelihood, right? Like you're sending a kid to Harvard, uh, you know, fully paid. That's that's worth something more than love, I think.
0: Um, let's also talk about more downsides. So, so let me complete answering your question because I, I took us down a different rabbit hole. So, what are the other downsides of funding too much money to college, specifically too much money in a five two nine plan? Is you might have to take it out later. And if you do that, you pay taxes and you pay penalties. There's a 10% penalty on the gain. You pay taxes on the gain as well. Uh, as I said earlier, you could roll it into another child. Uh, in terms of switching the beneficiary, you could just leave it in the account and leave it to your grandchildren or whatever, which is actually a really nice estate planning technique.
1: Can you put it into a name of the trust um, as well? A
0: 529 plan passes in an efficient way because it's no. a gift. So it's, it's not actually in your estate. Okay. It's an out of estate asset. Um so if I put X dollars into my son's 529 plan, it is a completed gift um and when I die, it doesn't come back into my my estate as a countable asset. And so for super super wealthy Great. people, you can um super fund 529 plans. So let me kind of explain sort of some of the gifting rules here. So in 2022, you can put $16,000 into a 529 plan. It was $15,000 last year. So a lot of people have that in their head still. It's now $16. So I can do that into the 529 plan, and there's no tax, no gift tax, nothing. My wife can also do that into the 529 plan, all for one kid, one beneficiary. So we can put $32,000 into the 529 plan. 529 plans also allow for a super funding, which allows you to do five years worth of that $32,000 all in a single year. And in any case, if you do more than the 16,000, you should file a form 509 on your, excuse me, 709 on your tax return, um, which says it's a it's a uh, gift splitting and possibly you're spreading this gift out over that five-year period. Why is this important? It's really only important in the event of an audit. And let's say that you did really super fund your 529 plan and you have a lot of money in there and you're paying for all of this uh, college expense out of your five nine, which you're then putting on your tax return as a tax-free withdrawal. What if the IRS audits you and they say, Hey, can you just show us how you got that much money in the five nine plan? Because you're getting a really good tax-free benefit. That's when you would have to roll back to these tax returns and show, look, I filed this tax form. It's form 709 and the form Seven Hundred Nine says, I, you know, put in the right amount of money. Once again, no tax on any of this stuff. It's just the paper trail proving how you actually put money into the account. Um, another note, let's say that you saved uh, uh, for college and your child gets a full ride somewhere. So you don't need any of the money. You can receive a waiver for the penalty portion of the 529 plan. So the IRS won't penalize you for saving for college because you didn't know that you know, your kid was gonna be a tennis star and like they got a full ride right
1: also encourages families to still apply for scholarships even if the kid isn't good point yeah um you know you know honor roll student it there's so many different scholarships available uh, any way you could chip away at the tuition tag right that's yeah that's what we encourage so apply and apply and apply
0: I like it. Well, so in summary, we like to fund early and, uh, often and be done early because it's like a Roth. Uh, we like to target roughly 50% of a private school goal. We will go more than that on a public school goal. If you're in Seattle and you want to go to university, of Washington, or that's your goal, we're good funding 70 or 80, or even hundred percent of that. Cause we feel like that's a, a low end of, of cost. Um, oh, one other thing, if you have two kids, we like two plans one plan per kid why because you can easily change the beneficiary of one plan to the other kid but you can't have two beneficiaries on one five to nine plan so um having two separate plans in other words there's no downside all the gifting rules that i explained earlier you can do that per beneficiary that's all well and good versus if you just had one five to nine plan for your older kid for example um you can't put in as much, you can't do that super funding as, as easily. Um, and also you're just relying on changing the beneficiary later to your youngest, which if your kids are in, cool, in school at the same time, you can't really do that. So one plan per kid is is the best practice.
1: Great info. Thank you. All right. All right. So I think,
0: that, I think that's our, that's time, our today. time. Awesome. Well, yeah. thanks as always. And we'll talk again
1: soon.